privilege that has been granted to you and me this morning to gather as we have done is already a tremendous blessing to be able to say that things are as well with us as they are, that health has been granted to you and me and the capability to come safely and without harm, without fear of being molested or persecuted specifically. What a grand and marvelous gift we enjoy in freedom and liberty to come together like this. As you can see on the screen to my left, to, to your right, the very nature of our subject this morning is advertised or made note of there in the bulletin will have to do with the honor associated with the institution of marriage. It goes without saying that God has poured upon all of us bountiful and many, many blessings that we enjoy so freely. And yet as we think about the bounty and the myriad version of those blessings, how significant it is to think about the personal aspect of our families be it our husband, our wife, our children, or our parents, to think about the nature in which we have been so bountifully and powerfully blessed. By way of introduction, couldn't we then make some of these remarks? Notice with me as we consider them somewhat briefly that with regard to the home, it certainly is fair to say that it is one of the greatest blessings that any of us enjoy. For after all, much of what we are in part came to be by the environment in which we were raised and that environment that we enjoy daily in our home, a home of peacefulness or a home of other circumstances as it may be. That home is a powerful guide and a powerful determining factor in who we are and the kind of individual that in fact we will become. It's also interesting to notice that the Bible says much about the home. Time and again, the sacred scriptures turn our attention toward the reality of that home, not only with respect to its origination, but also what it ought to be, what the promise is that God has in store for it, and the great reality that God means for it to have with regard to the, the, the determination daily for you and for me. That home is truly a marvelous subject, and many lessons could be devoted to it. This one lesson this morning... Perhaps that final comment on that sheet draws to our mind what each of us have already come to experience and what we've come to appreciate. We need not watch the news very long. We need not read very many articles in the newspaper. We need not scrutinize very many magazines before we fully appreciate the fact that the home is suffering some rather difficult times currently. Oh, it's true that throughout ever since the days it was first established, the home has had its opponents. The home has known its enemies, but the home has prevailed. But it certainly is true that today in 21st century America, and yea, 21st century world, the home is again being beaten and battered, and that which rests before you and me is not always a pretty sight. It's not always that which is in harmony, of course, with the Word of God, but in fact it opposes it. What then about the honor of marriage? Today's lesson will attempt to set before you and me the fact that marriage as intended by God is so very honorable, it is so very precious, and it is something to which we not only can delight as we think about it, but something we could instill within our youth and challenge them to ever appreciate that it's not what man declares about marriage, but it's what the Holy Word of God says about it, and oh, how wonderful that statement is. In fact, that seems like a good way to begin the lesson today. If you and I were asked to define marriage, what would we say? What is marriage? Well, may I submit to you that, of course, the Bible says much that we could piece together and form a mighty and grand definition. 
but maybe one of the finest that I have ever seen written was put together by a non-inspired man, a gentleman named H. Leo Bowles. You perhaps have heard of him. He wrote for the Gospel Advocate for, for, for decades. One of the statements in a series of articles that he put forth on the subject of the home was this one. I have included it on that following screen, as you can see to my left. Marriage is an institution ordained of God for the honor and happiness of mankind in which one man and one woman enter into a bodily and spiritual union, pledging each to the other's mutual love, honor, fidelity, sympathy, forbearance, and comradeship, such as should assure an unbroken continuance of their wedlock so long as both shall live. Now even though that was written by a man again named H. Leo Bowles, the reason that it might be interesting for us to consider is the fact that those statements he's included in that definition are drawn from the Word of God. And over the next few moments today, let us take some of the aspects of that statement and use God's Word as our guide to consider the power and majesty of that institution known as marriage. As Brother Bowles wrote that now, almost a century ago, we can appreciate that it hasn't lost any of its fervor, any of its power, any of the very aspect of its being. And thus, with that said, let us take the opening statement in his definition, the very first statement that's to be found there. That'll be our first major observation for our time of consideration this morning. The first point we must never forget the first point, in fact, that the human family needs to appreciate time and time again is the fact that marriage is ordained of God. That very fact alone helps us understand that marriage itself is not the brainchild of psychologists or sociologists. In fact, as often as mankind is highly touted and as often as he's respected, man can invent many things. But never in the history of the world did man invent marriage. It was not man's idea. In Genesis chapter 2, we turn back to the opening saga with respect to marriage. And isn't it a touching scene when in verse 18 of Genesis chapter 2, we notice that God makes a remark concerning the, that which he had made. It is not good that the man should be alone. And immediately we notice that God had identified something that wasn't as ideal or perfect as it ought to have been. He observed that with regard to the creation of Adam, Adam was alone. Now it is true that Adam was surrounded by many different types of life. The animals had been made on day five, plants on day three, but they were not a suitable helpmeet for Adam. No animal ever was, nor ever will be, a suitable helpmeet, helper suitable for the human family. Animals make wonderful friends and pets, but they are not the companion of which God spoke in Genesis 2. And isn't it amazing that with regard to that thing that was missing, that idea of companionship that was absent, God took the initiative to fix it. He said, I will make and help meet for him. That King James language simply means a helper suitable for man. Amongst all of that which God had fashioned, be it the animals or the other things he had made, there was not a helper suitable for man. And thus, God brought a deep sleep upon Adam and removed from his side a rib. And from that rib he fashioned 
the finality of his creation, the zenith of what God had made, he fashioned a woman as he brought her then to the man. We do notice so amazingly and remarkably in verses 22, 23, and 24 of Genesis 2 that these statements are therein found. First of all, as God brought her to the man, God proceeded to marry them. He officiated at the first marriage ceremony. It's often perhaps been observed that not only did God give away the bride, he officiated at the first ceremony. Interesting, isn't it? But what's more, Adam first made remark. He said, This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. But then God next replies, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. As God made that powerful remark concerning the union that he had forged, that marriage that he had made, we immediately see that it was not Adam's idea. It was God's prescription. It was his ordination of this institution. We can see that many, many things have changed in our world since the time of the events of Genesis 2. Specifically, sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Might we remark that many of the ideas of the perfectness and pristine nature of planet Earth changed once sin entered. There was no death prior to sin. But might we remark, did marriage change? When sin entered the world, did God either do away with or in some way fundamentally alter marriage? He did not. The marriage ideal, that bond that he had forged, continued to hold and continued to be that which he had made. And aren't we the blessed recipients of that still till this day? Oh, indeed, God was the one that ordained marriage. God was the one that instituted it. It was not man, no matter how intellectual or brilliant or supposedly interesting man's thoughts may have been. But all that being said, notice what Jesus had to say about the same idea. In fact, our blessed Savior, often in his discussion of the institution of marriage, hearkened men's attention back to that initial scene, the one to which you and I just referred. In Matthew chapter 19, there was a scene in which various ones appeared before Jesus, Pharisees in particular, and they asked him a great question. As the Lord answered that question, notice with me verses 4 and 5. He said, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? When the subject of marriage arose, the Lord did not turn men's attention to what the elders had said or what Moses had said. He took them back to where it started. Have ye not read... You and I read that a moment ago. We have read that indeed God made them male and female at the beginning. And as such, he instituted this institution we know of as marriage. And thus, this first lesson challenges us time and again to ever remember that no matter what man may legislate about it, no matter what ultimate thoughts man may have concerning it, God made it, and thus he has every right to legislate concerning it. And thus, our second observation. What else might we appreciate from Brother Bowles' statement concerning marriage? Also on this same statement, same screen to my left, might we observe that Brother Bowles expressly made the remark that marriage is for the honor and happiness of mankind. 
we observed just a moment ago that in that scene of Genesis chapter 2, it was the fact that God had observed something was not ideal. The man was alone. We, of course, are not to take upon that the statement that it is always a desired and always a commanded thing for a person to marry. It may well be that a person could live a happy and long life being single, remaining or choosing to remain so, but it is a general statement that people need companionship, a helper suitable for him or her. As God made that, that identification, apart from and before his creation of the woman, there was no companion, no helper suitable for mankind. However, with his formation, his creation of the woman, and his bringing her to the man, that perfect companion was now identified. She was Adam's companion, his helper, the one suitable for him. Isn't it fascinating then that the honor and happiness that was instilled within marriage are such that that was the way that God had fashioned it and that's the way that God had made it. That happiness and that honor that God put within it helps us notice the strength that's available. It's a wonderful thing to see that man and woman who have been there for each other through decades, who have been there to strengthen and encourage and support one another, been there to be the one to be leaned upon when times got hard, the one to whom one can discuss and share the most intimate, the most powerful, the most far-reaching thoughts of one's mind. Oh, what great things to be thought of concerning that companion, the happiness that can be brought, the strength that can be fortified, the power that's there to be observed. As we notice the very nature then of that marriage and what is available, the blessings to be had within it, isn't it also amazing what is not therein present? Marriage and the very character to be seen within it was not for the convenience of man. It was not a cultural arrangement to address some specific boundary problem. Today, then, we should understand that when it comes to marriage, we need to make sure that our young people and all of us understand the fact marriage is not just a matter of convenience. It's not something for the purposes of tax laws. It's not something to be entered into just to gain popularity before the mind of others. Marriage is much deeper than that. Marriage as being instituted and ordained of God was for the express purpose and benefit of the human family. It is the bedrock of nations. And without that, nations will in fact suffer and nations will in fact crumble. We might understand the amazing character of the goodness then to be seen. Recall Solomon's grand statement in his wisdom of Proverbs 18. He therein said, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and has favor of the Lord. That one who finds that love, that lady, that woman, and that woman who finds that man has found a good thing. The goodness then to be had in marriage is a part of the way God originally had made it. Quite often we have seen that men and their ideas have tarnished or brought upon marriage a very different character than the way God originally fashioned it. In these two observations that we've made, we've learned first that God ordained it, being marriage, and second, it was fashioned for the happiness and honor of the human family. But let us notice also a third remark. This remark, also from what was contained in Brother Bowles' statements earlier, 
Notice an interesting fact that Brother Bowles made note of the fact that there was a union involved, both bodily and spiritual, that directly implies to you and me that marriage involves three parties. It might be fair to say that this is one of the most misunderstood of all the aspects concerning marriage. We often are so easily able to see two parties. There's the man and there's the woman. But isn't it easy to forget that there is a third? There, you see, is one in which we must not forget that as God instituted marriage and as he formalized the regulation of it, God's also involved. What was it Jesus stated in Matthew 19, verse 6? What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Quite often we utilize that statement in the marriage vows or in a ceremony that's made before our hearing today. What God has joined together, who joins them? Is it the state of Tennessee by some kind of legal arrangement? Is it the United States government by some official decree? It is not. God joins the man and the woman in marriage. It is God who formalizes that union and places it in the concrete and united fashion. God is involved in that union. Might we appreciate then that inasmuch as God fashioned it and inasmuch as he has regulated concerning it, he sets the statements that regulate and give us the ways that make a right marriage. The statements that God has given us no finer textbook on marriage exists than this one. You and I may consult books a million in Cookville and look at the books that are there present that supposedly help us to have better marriages or give us advice and counsel as to how to make our marriage better. There is no finer textbook than this on marriage. It is God's textbook. All the regulations man needs concerning marriage are found within it. Those statements, those commandments, those ordinances, those laws, those prescriptions are there for our benefit and for us to appreciate and understand. We can thus easily see that indeed marriage is far more than just a legal contract. We can go to the courthouse in Putnam County or to the courthouse in Gainesboro and we can look up marriage records and find where it was officially made so but we must never forget that it's in the very mind of God in the halls of heaven that marriages are joined and united as God joins them and as he makes them that which he would have them be. Might you note with me too that concerning what I have on that screen there to my left, when we fail to realize this fact, we immediately are asking for difficulties. When we think that we can make a marriage according to the way we think or make it according to the way we like or make the laws that we find pleasing, we are asking for difficulty. We dare not tamper with marriage. We dare not make or change it in any way in which God has not authorized it. And isn't this an interesting time to make mention of what we in the state of Tennessee are going to address on Tuesday? It is an amazing thought that you would think that marriage in as fundamental a way as it is, it was the first institution that the human family ever was a part of. It's the oldest institution on earth. It predates civil government. It predates even the church. It has been around now since practically the dawn of time. And yet there has arisen in recent days and in recent years such a confusion regarding it that now apparently we need to define it. 
We need to officially declare in the Tennessee State Constitution what it is and what it is not. That alone is somewhat a grand and sad statement about the way in which our society has currently become. It is no longer the case that it's obvious what marriage is. We have to now have a state amendment to define it. But as we contemplate that fact, we nonetheless should recognize the grandness of what God has fashioned in the marriage, and only a marriage is as God has defined it. Neither you nor I nor anybody else is at liberty to make whatever we want a marriage and call it that. If it isn't marriage as God has orchestrated it, then it's not marriage at all. That alone leads us to a fourth observation. And as we look at the last two of these, would you consider with me the interesting thrust and power that's to be found within them? That last one on that sheet. Marriage is indeed a deep and profound union. By the very nature of that union, that's the very word that Brother Bowles had used, but isn't that a mighty one as it relates to what God has revealed? I've listed three passages of Scripture there that help us understand. One flesh. One flesh. First of all, that occurred in Genesis 2. God made the explicit statement, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Jesus used that same wording in Matthew 19. Paul referred to it again verbatim in Ephesians 5, verse 31. We can't miss the fact then that this issue of one flesh is a significant one. We understand fully that when that man and that woman marry, Certainly there are two persons, two individuals. What does it mean that they become one flesh? What does it mean to say that these two are so united and so harmonious that they are one flesh? Well, in part, we understand that has an intimate side to it. For after all, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16, it's there even stated that those that would join himself to a harlot has become one body with that one. The enjoyment, the blessing of the intimate or sexual side to marriage is truly another gift of God. But this statement goes somewhat deeper than that. One flesh? Doesn't that remind us of that statement that Brother Bowles had also made? That these two are for one another's love, companionship, fidelity, honor, comradeship, and forbearance. You see, a marriage is the deepest of all physical unions upon this earth. You and I may experience many relationships. With our employer, we may understand what it means to work for someone. With regard to a person, say, at school, we may understand what it means to learn from a given teacher. But no physical relationship, no physical relationship upon this earth has within it the powerful identity associated with marriage. That man and that woman, as they enjoy not only the physical intimacy, but that joining together of aspirations and goals and impressions and initiatives and the beauty of accomplishment and the joy of mutual strength, the power of love seen and exemplified and appreciated daily. All of that's a part of that wonderful nature of marriage, isn't it? As one considers that idea alone, 
it challenges us ever more to understand that this powerful union is not only significant, but as I point out there, it's deep and profound. In fact, could man design a means of producing a union that profound, that deep, that meaningful, that lasting? You and I can see in the lives of those who perhaps have been married 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years or more, that lifelong companionship, deep and profound love that they've come to share, that they've come to know, it's almost something that's difficult to describe, isn't it? But yet we know that it's there, that union and all the love that's gone with it. These thoughts and these statements alone have challenged us perhaps to appreciate the fifth observation too. In this fifth observation, we did notice that Brother Bowles made another statement. He stated that the marriage itself was be such that it would last until the lives of each would in fact be taken from them or until death do us part, to use the statements that we often employ in the marriage ceremony, an idea of permanency. As we turn back the clock then to Genesis chapter 2 again, what is it there that we read earlier? When God recognized that the man was alone, how did he fix that problem? What did he do to initiate the solution? He fashioned one woman. And thus, can we not conclude that God's plan was one woman for one man for life? For there again God had said that a man should leave father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and twain they become one flesh. And when we remember Jesus' statement, what God has joined together, let not man put asunder, God had originated this idea that then for the one man there was to be one woman. And once married, that union, that blessed union of wedlock, that marriage was to be a permanent relation. The power and the joy to be seen in it helps us realize and appreciate that that lasting character seen time and again through the blessed scriptures. It's true that as we look at the statements to be noted, that idea, our society has by and large come to misunderstand. Isn't it true that we live in a society and in a time when we are accustomed to having things the way we want them? We purchase a car. Two years later, we suddenly become somewhat less than pleased, and though we trade it and obtain a new one. Or isn't it true that we buy a house, but after five years we come to find that it's not where we'd like it, it doesn't have all the features we prefer, and so we sell it and obtain another one. Our society is based upon that, isn't it? We like to find the restaurant that has the foods we like, and amongst Cookville we certainly seemingly can find one amongst the dozens. But when it comes to a circumstance such as marriage, does it operate that way? by the regulations that God has provided, do we have the liberty of doing away with one and then finding or entering into yet another just as surely as we might so choose or like? Or is there a deeper constraint concerning it? We've already noted that Jesus made that fundamental prescription that once God joins, man is not to put asunder. We do remember so easily and this will be the subject for a very shortly coming lesson. In Matthew 19, verse 9, God did, through the blessed Savior, give the prescriptions by which a marriage can be done away with in a matter of divorce and then another marriage entered. 
But as we look upon our society today, man often has looked upon that very differently, hasn't he? He doesn't seem to need that statement that Jesus gave. He finds other causes and other reasons. But are they scriptural? Are they those things by which God would proclaim that first marriage thus to be separated? Jesus himself made that statement that the number of reasons given for which a marriage can be done away and then another one scripturally entered number very, very few. In fact, in all the New Testament, there are only two. Jesus identified the one there in Matthew 19, 9. But isn't it true that Paul did write note of another one in Romans chapter 7? As we study them again, and this will be part of our lesson next Lord's Day morning, we will find that those regulations that God gave, very specific, and oh, how powerful they are. As we briefly come to a point of recognizing where we have arrived at our lesson, we have learned that marriage itself is extremely powerful and honorable, so much so that in fact these five observations tell us time and again of that nature. Could we not summarize using that text that was read in our hearing by Brother Lucas a moment ago? In fact, as we come perhaps to realize, marriage, as you and I have seen God define it, by using these statements today, marriage itself is a marvelous and wonderful thing, and it is still honorable. We live in a land where far too often marriage isn't honored. It isn't respected like it once was. In fact, you may have seen the recent news headlines just as I did. A rather sad statistic came to be known to you and me just last week. Typically, it has been understood that in the United States of America, over 50% of all those families are actually married with a man and a woman forming the basis of that family. However, that changed last week. With modern statistical keeping methods, it was found out that now less than 50% of the families in our land are fashioned in accordance to that which I just stated. They are made in some other way, in some other form to make a home. Might we ponder long and hard the nature? Has it come to the point that marriage is respected that little? Has it come to the point that marriage is appreciated that little? What is it that's making up so many of these homes? As we mentioned earlier, it's entirely right for a person to choose to live single, but that forms a reasonably small percentage of the whole. You might be interested to note that the largest percentage of that group are those who are choosing to live together unmarried. Choosing to live together in fornication unmarried. Might we often remark then that it is important for us never to forget marriage is honorable. God said so. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. The whole idea of union with regard to marriage is so vitally important that here the Hebrew writer near the close of that inspired document asks us to remember that marriage is honorable. They in the first century needed to know that. You and I today must know it. And thus, when we teach our children about marriage and what God said about it, that's honorable. Oh, in school, they may be taught something else about it, but they need to be taught from an early age that what man says about marriage is not what God said. God's definitions prevail. 
God's prescriptions rule. God's ideas are sovereign. Legislators and those in position may make many laws concerning it, and you and I should look forward to the times we can defend what God has said about it. With all these thoughts made and these ideas present, notice some of the other ways the honor of marriage is so highly stated in the Bible. Where was it that our Savior performed His first public miracle? In John 2, verses 1 through 11, it was at a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. Our Savior honored the idea, the ordination, the institution of marriage by being present at a marriage feast in the first century. And on that occasion, He performed His first miracle. Later in Matthew 8, verse 14, on one occasion when Jesus had come to Capernaum, He came to the house of Peter, and who did He find ill? Peter's wife's mother. Peter the apostle was married. That great apostle, the one who on the day of Pentecost preached the greatness of that sermon together with the other apostles there present, he was married. We learn in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, many of the apostles were married. And as such, Jesus never condemned them for that. In fact, he always honored that institution of marriage in the highest and loftiest of ways. You and I today can rest some 20 centuries later in the glorious goodness of knowing that God ordained marriage and in the other comments we've made. Isn't it fair to summarize in this way? God ordained marriage. He ordained it, instituted it for the happiness and honor of mankind. And what's more, did we not also learn that it involves three parties, not just the two? And with all that said, isn't it also a simple statement in fact that as God fashioned and made marriage, it is a profound and very deep union. And finally, it's permanent. It has an intent, a design to be permanent as long as the two shall live. These things have helped us remember that though man may say many things to the contrary about marriage, he hasn't changed its basic nature. Though the way man approaches it may often appear to make it dishonorable, that's not the way God intended it, and that's not the way He fashioned it. As we look then toward the lesson of next Lord's Day, may we understand that we will continue this particular discussion of marriage and look at a sequel lesson to it. But in pointing toward that, one of the bases for it will be the honor that's instilled within it. May we cherish marriage. May we speak of it highly. May we appreciate the grandness that's instilled within it. And may we strive to teach our children about these things we've learned today so that when the time comes that they begin to think about marriage, that they begin to ponder the nature of entering into that lifelong union, that they will know the very thing and the way that God made it. They'll not enter into it lightly or trivially. And even we as older ones will be able to even consider it as we should the blessedness and the beauty of marriage. It's for certain that if we are to be the best marriage partner we can be, we need to be a child of God. We need to have the Lord at our side personally so that we can have His strength to make the right decisions, that we can use His Word more openly to guide ourselves in the pathways of righteousness. Today, are you a Christian? Have you turned your life over and relinquished control of it to the blessed Savior? He gave His life for you, and as such, He intends you to live for Him. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. Today, if you've never become a Christian, 
Make that change in your life today. It'll be a happy occasion. It'll be a marvelous statement in which you turn over control of your life to Him. He asks that you believe in Him. You must repent of your sins and furthermore confess His sweet name as your Savior. Upon doing that, we will aid you in being immersed in water, baptized, if you will, for the remission of your sins. If you've done that, but you have lost the essence, you have lost the daily commitment that you once had with the Savior, come back to your first love. He does not want you to remain apart from Him. In fact, He begs you come back home. If we could assist you today by way of prayer on your behalf or by way of aiding you initially in your public obedience to the initial principles of the gospel, don't delay, but let us help you do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.